All right, church. So what I kind of, um, where you might be thinking oh, you're a little bit out of order in the preaching rotation, and we are a little bit, but it's okay. So um, what I want us to consider here this morning is going to be found here in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and it's an important doctrine here of the Christian faith. So maybe you've picked up on it with the scripture readings and all the songs. But I want you to think about something we're going to do here in a little bit. So every week we come together for worship, we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And what we do when we recite that creed is we're renewing once again weekly, right? Our commitments to these essential Christian doctrines um, of the faith when we recite the Apostles' Creed. But I want you um, this morning to hear one phrase in that creed that I want to kind of focus on as the point of the sermon this morning. So in the creed... And I want to say you all, because I know I recite it. I want you guys to think about this. In the creed, you guys recite this particular line, and you confess it every single week. And, and this is the line I'm thinking of. In the Apostles' Creed, it says, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Hopefully you've memorized it enough, you know the rest after that. But that particular phrase right there in the Apostles' Creed he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what we are doing with that phrase, brethren, is we are summing up a particular doctrine in the Christian life. We are summing up the doctrine known as the ascension of Christ. Has everyone heard that particular word before, the ascension of Christ as a, as a Christian doctrine? Okay, I'm getting some nods. Good. Okay. I think for the most part, yes. All right. So this is something we might be familiar with. And, and, and it's essentially this, just a, just a bare reading of what the ascension is, 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 is the ascension is Christ after he died, right? He, he, he died. He's buried for three days. He rises again from the dead. And then what happens to him? Well, he ascends to heaven and it says there in Acts and all over the New Testament that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right? So the, the, this is the basic summation of this Christian doc, this doctrine of ascension. Christ, after he was buried and raised, he went up to heaven, right? He didn't stay here. He rose up to heaven, ascended to heaven, and it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so as, as we confess this in the creed, and as we confess this as a doctrinal thing that we believe in, this is not something, brethren, that is just basic to what it means to confess the Christian faith, though it is. This is actually something that, in my opinion, is essential to confess in our Christian faith, right? It's not just basic to the Christian faith. This is an essential element of what it means to be a Christian, and the question would be is why? Why do, why, why do we recite this truth? Why, why is it essential for a Christian to believe this particular doctrine? Because the question you could ask is, is it really that important? Right? Is it really that important that every single week we would confess a doctrine like this? Does it matter that you do? Does it matter that we confess this kind of doctrine every single week? And brethren, my, my goal this morning, though it might be short... I just want to simply convince you this morning that it is. That the, that the ascension is not just a doctrine that you can either have or not have. It's actually something that's essential to the Christian faith. It's not just basic uh, to the Christian story. This is actually essential to the faith itself. The faith is, 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 is absolutely held up by this particular doctrine. And so I want you convinced, brethren, though, not only because, as we will later, we will cite this again from the Apostles' Creed, but brethren, listen, I want to be clear in this. 
I don't want you convinced just because you recite the creed, though it's important. I want you convinced because the scriptures themselves leave you no other choice on this matter that the doctrine of the ascension is essential for your Christian life. And brethren, hopefully then, if it's essential, that you'll see this morning as well, that it's meaningful for your life. Amen? Right? If something is essential for your Christian life, then hopefully there's some kind of meaningful impact that it has upon your life. And so hopefully we'll be able to see that this morning. So I want to do a couple things, just two simple things. First is going to be this. If we're going to grasp the significance of the ascension, then we need to know what does the ascension mean? Not what is the ascension, which is, well, Christ rose again from the grave and then he went up into heaven. That's true. That's what the ascension is. But what does it mean that Christ went up to heaven? What, what, what's the theological significance to Christ dying, being raised, and then going up to heaven? Is there any? And so I want us to be able to grasp that significance first. What is the significance of the ascension. What does the ascension mean? So that'll be our first point. And then second would be this. If we understand then what the ascension means, its significance, then what are some of the implications for our lives? So two very uh, simple points this morning. What does the ascension mean? And then what are some of the implications for our Christian lives? So let's, let's begin here with what does the ascension mean? So as you, as you heard me in the opening, Right, the ascension is this very simple event of Christ ascending up to the right hand of the Father after He's been raised from the dead. So you guys can look with me here at Acts chapter 1. I just want you to actually see it in the Bible, right? <laughs> there is a place where this is recorded in the Bible. So Acts chapter 1 is kind of this hinge of holding the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ here together. And this is where this event is recorded. So Acts 1 going to read verses 9 to 11. So Acts 1 verse 9, and this is after Jesus had been speaking with them, and it says this in verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, speaking of Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so a bit simple, right? That's what the ascension is, right? Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, what does it mean? What's the significance that Jesus went into heaven and ascended to the right hand of the Father? Well, we're just going to flip now to one more chapter in Acts chapter 2, and let's see what does the ascension mean. So like I said, you guys can keep your finger there at 29, and before we begin reading this little section, I want you to have a brief understanding of what's actually happening by the time we get to verse 29. So immediately after Jesus ascends into heaven, right, the disciples are awaiting in Jerusalem for what? the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had said would come, right? And so the, the disciples are waiting these, these 40 days here for the Spirit to be poured out. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on the disciples. And then Acts chapter 2 is the recording of what happens. And then 
what takes place after this event of the Spirit being poured out is, right? So the Spirit gets poured out here in Acts chapter 2. And then Peter stands up and he begins to preach what we call the first, you know, Christian sermon sometimes. He begins up and he begins to preach. And here's what Peter's doing when he gets up to preach. He's not just excited to spout off theology. Peter is explaining to the people before him what is happening, right? Peter gets up after this event of the Spirit happens, and he, and he begins up to preach because he wants to tell the people before him what is going on before Christ because everyone there is confused, right? No, a lot of people around them don't know what's going on. And so Peter's going to get up, and he's going to begin to tell the people, here is what is happening. But most importantly, and in our section here today, he's going to tell you why it's happening, right? He's not going to tell you what's just happening in these events. He's going to tell us why it is happening. And he begins here by giving two theological explanations for what is happening before these people. The Spirit's poured out. What on earth is going on? Well, Peter says two things. He says, one, listen, the Spirit has been poured out in fulfillment of Old Testament promises. That's how he begins his little message right here. He says, the Spirit's been poured out in light of Old Testament promises. And then he moves on to a second point. And he says, why is the Spirit being poured out? Well, this is happening because Christ was crucified and raised from the dead as also prophesied in the Old Testament. This is what just happened according to Peter. So Peter lays this out for them. Brethren, this is why this is, or th this is what is happening before your eyes, right? The Spirit's been poured out and Christ has been raised from the dead. The Messiah has been raised from the dead. However, as we're going to see in our section right here, Peter goes on and draws out a third point. Not only has the Spirit been poured out, and not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but he's now going to give a big theological reason for why did both of these events take place? What is going on and why did they take place? And so now Peter is going to state for you the why. The why behind these things are happening and then what, they, what do they mean then for the people? And brother, ultimately, what does it mean for us that these things happen? So this is where we pick up now. If you have your finger there in 29, I'm going to read 29 through 36. And then we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of quickly make our way through a few points here in this section. So look with me. Acts 2, beginning in verse 29. So Acts 2, beginning here in verse 29. Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what's going on here in this, this brief section of Acts 2, this third point that... Uh, 
Peter is now drawing for us. Now, I want to remind you again, because this is helpful just in understanding this flow of thought here, right? This is Peter's third point in this section, right? He has just explained what has happened before the people's eyes. The resurrection of Christ has occurred. Many of the disciples there had seen the risen Lord Jesus. And all these people have now experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now in 29, Peter wants them to understand why. Why have these things happened? And notice Peter's first point. He just tells you right off the bat, why has this happened? And his answer is, because God had sworn an oath to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. So look there again, 29 and 30. Listen to what he says. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and, and here's the key part, and knowing, so here's what David knew, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So Peter's doing this. He's reasoning with the people here. He's saying, look, the reason the Christ, who is David's son, who's this great Messiah, right? The reason these events have taken place, that the resurrection took place, that the Spirit's been poured out, the reason this has taken place is because God had sworn to David that one of his sons would sit and rule and reign forever. This was an oath that God had made by swearing to himself and that this had to be accomplished by one of David's descendants, right? So the, the promise was, um, was never ultimately to be seen accomplished in David. And we know this because Peter stands up and says, brothers, David's in the grave. This was not ultimately speaking about David. This was speaking about someone greater. It was speaking about the promise that God had given to David. Hey, one of your sons is going to reign. And God banked his name on that. And so Peter's telling the people, there's a reason why the Messiah had to be raised. And there's a reason why the Spirit had to be poured out. It's because, excuse me, it's because God had promised by an oath to David that one of his sons had to rule, right? And then he tells you who this son really is. We get the full name, right? Because who is this Christ? Well, Peter declares that there in the next couple verses. This Messiah is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, right? He says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, dot, dot, dot. And then he goes on and says, this Jesus, right? This Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus, God raised up. So Peter is reasoning with the people here. And he's telling them, all these things have taken place before your eyes. The resurrection and the outpouring of spirit the reason these things have taken place is because God has promised to David that one of, them, one of his sons, namely the Christ, who is Jesus, would become king and sit on his throne forever and rule. Right? This, brethren, listen to this. This reason, this oath that God had sworn to David that one of his sons would rule is the reason. Listen to this. This oath to David is the reason why the Christ had to be raised. This is why the Messiah had to come out of the grave. Because God had sworn an oath that David's son would reign, right? He had to be resurrected by God in order for the promise to stand, right? 
Because Jesus is this rightful Messiah. He's this rightful King. He is the true Son. So what happens when Jesus is killed? The oath is in jeopardy. Right? If you kill the heir who's supposed to rule, he's not reigning. He's not sitting on a throne. He's not exalted. In fact, he's in the grave seeing corruption. And so Peter is reminding the people, the things you see before your eyes, the resurrection of this Messiah, the outpouring of the Spirit, it had to happen. Why? God swore an oath to David and said, your son will sit on the throne. And so he had to raise him from the dead. He had to raise him from the dead. Otherwise, this oath is in jeopardy. God's name is at stake. And so guess what? God raised him. But here is where Peter, beginning in verse 33, makes this astonishing connection with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 33 here. Notice this connection that Peter makes at verse 33. I'm going to read that first phrase there. Being therefore, right? So he's given a reason now, coming off of 32. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, right? So look there at, the, at 33. This comes right after 32, where, where Peter says that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And now in 33... Peter can make the connection between Jesus being raised and Jesus' ascension and speak of them like two sides of the same coin. He immediately switches his, his word and his verbiage here and now begins to speak of the ascension of Jesus Christ, or as we could say, his exaltation, which is his ascension. Peter makes this, 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 this inseparable connection between 32 and 33 by telling us that there is a vital connection between the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And the reason for this is what I've already stated. And, and so when you ask yourself the question, how can Peter say Jesus was raised up and then in 33 he says, being therefore exalted? Well, exaltation and resurrection, I didn't think those were the same exact things. And while they're not the same exact things, they come together. This is a packaged meal right here. If you got resurrection, you have exaltation. And so how can Peter just switch between the resurrection of Christ in 32 and then start talking about his exaltation in 33? Well, brethren, it's because these two things are inseparable. Why was the Messiah raised from the dead? Because, as Peter's already told us, God had sworn an oath. He had to come up out of the grave. Why? Because his rightful place from all of history for all the time was to sit at the right hand of the Father. It was to sit on a throne. He had to be put there. But in order to be put there, brethren, well, he had to come out of that grave. He had to come out of that grave. Which tells you this, brethren, that what Peter is doing and telling you right here is very important about how we think about the resurrection and the ascension. This is not a magic act. God didn't raise Jesus from the dead because he wanted to just raise somebody from the life and say, ooh, look what I did. Look, I raised this guy from life. No, 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 brethren, listen. The reason Jesus had to rise from the dead was so that he could ascend. 
And in order for him to ascend to his rightful place that was prophesied from long ago in the Old Testament, God had to raise him. Because if he raises him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to ascend. He's going to raise him up from the dead and he's going to ascend to his throne. And these two things are rightfully connected. This right here, brethren, is the why behind the resurrection and behind the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter is telling us, why did these things take place? Because he had to go up to his father and sit down on a throne. That's why these things have taken place from you. This Messiah had to reign. And in order for him to do that, he had to be raised from the dead and he had to pour out the Spirit. So brethren, God raised him from the dead in order that Jesus, who is the Christ, would ascend and sit down at his Father's right hand. And if, the, and if the Messiah remains dead, brethren, guess what? He can't rule. If the Messiah remains in the grave, he can't ascend to the throne. And so he was therefore raised from the dead in order, brethren, in order to be exalted and to be seated at the right hand of God to rule as king. And brethren, this, this is the why behind the ascension. This is what the ascension means. That Christ being raised from the dead can now rightfully go up to his father and sit down on his throne and begin to rule and to reign as the rightful king because God had sworn an oath that it would happen. And so the ascension of Christ, brethren, then is, 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 is this. The ascension of Christ is not just Jesus going up to heaven, performing some miracle. The ascension of Christ is this crowning event. It's like a king gets made in England and they have this whole coronation ceremony where they lead in procession until the, the crown's set on his head. This is what the ascension of Christ is. The ascension of Christ is this great crowning event of the king. This is his exaltation. It is his vindication. That really is the king. Why? Because the crown's going on his head. It's his enthronement. It's his coronation ceremony. And this, brethren, is what the ascension means. Not just what it is. It's not just he floated up to heaven. Brethren, the ascension means something. It means that Christ ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father to rule, to be a king, to be established as a king. And it means then that he has become king. It means also that this king's kingdom has arrived. And this is how Peter concludes this section here for us. You want to look here at 34. So he just tells us that he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then in 34, he is going to give you without any doubt that this is the case. In 34, he says this. For David did not ascend into the heavens, right? David did not go up to the heavens to sit down, right? He died and he's in the ground. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, here's what David says about his own, his own son that's coming. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? So he's quoting, it, it, it might not be me, but it's going to be one of my sons. And then Peter makes this bold declaration here right at the end of 36. He tells the people, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Well, how can he say that for certain, brethren? How can he say, you know this for certain. God has declared this thing to you. Why? Because he ascended. Because Christ ascended, you can know for certain God vindicated him and made him king. Why? Because he went up to sit down at the right hand of the Father, which means he went up to be king. He went up to his rightful place. He went up to rule and be established as the rightful king. Oh, so brethren, this, this is what the ascension then means for us. It means that Christ, as he lived and as he died and as he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, it means that Christ has been enthroned as king to rule and to reign. That's what it means. That's what the ascension means for me and for you, and not just for me and you, for everybody. This is what the ascension means to us. And so, brethren, if that is the case, if it is the case that this happened, if it is the case that the Christ really did rise from the dead and he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the question comes, what are some of the implications then, right? Because we can know the theological fact now. We can understand what the ascension means. But what are some implications then of the ascension for us. And I'm only going to give you a brief because we could have an infinite amount of implications. But I wrote down a few here for us to think about. And a few of these beginning with just how we think about the world in general. The first one is this. The first implication I think of the ascension of Jesus Christ is all men must bow the knee to him. Because this is this is the apostles' call to men as they preach this good news. You go read throughout the book of Acts. Every time the gospel gets preached, the end conclusion is, therefore, you must repent. Jesus has been installed as Lord and King. How? He ascended. He went up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, which means he's the King. Therefore, there's only one response in light of this. There's only one that God will give, and it's that you would bow the knee, which means this. You would submit. That's what bowing a knee means. You submit to him. You repent and turn to Him. This is the only proper response to this great news. Because brethren, listen, the ascension really is great news. It means the King has arrived. It means the King is ruling. It means He's reigning. And so, brethren, as this Lord of glory gets proclaimed, that the Father has installed His Son on His throne because He's ascended into heaven, allegiance has to be given to Him. Men have to come. There's no option. This is the language of Psalm 2. Listen to this, Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now why did he just say that in the psalm? Because the king's just been installed. He sat him down on his throne. And so, brethren, listen, at the preaching of Jesus Christ as Lord, that he's ascended into heaven, there's only one proper response. And the psalmist knows this. He tells men, you be wise, because now you know a fact. You know a fact. Hey, that king, he's sitting on his throne now. And because of that, you should be wise what you do with that fact. Because it's a fact. Christ is on the throne, whether you like it or not. Therefore, be wise. And be warned. <laughs> right? This psalmist is not trying to have any blood on his hands. Serve the Lord with fear. Why? Kiss the sun. Bow the knee. Give him your allegiance. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish 
in the way. Because brethren, listen, if there's not a proper response given to this king who has rightfully ascended to his throne that was promised to him, that he earned by, by, by obedience to his father, there is a rightful response for the son to be angry because he's worthy of it. He's not just angry because he doesn't get a, a, a fan club full of people. He rightfully has indignation against those who would not come because it's the best thing for them and they are rejecting it. And so brethren, listen, the installment of Jesus as king is not something then that we can propose to people to simply be considered or weighed. Right? The exaltation of the Son of God to the Father's right hand is not a proposal that we hand out to people. It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not some intellectual debate that we have on a Saturday night, brethren. It is this. It's a decree to the nations. It's a decree, and it's this. Jesus is Lord. Bow the knee. That, that's the simple decree. And so, brethren, there's no room for us then to offer it in any other way. This, brother, needs to shape how we give this message to the world. Hey, Jesus has been made Lord. You need to repent because he will gladly welcome you in. But be warned, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Because he's worthy of this kind of thing. He's been installed. So, brethren, the message must be Christ is Lord, therefore come. No other message for us, brethren. All must bow the knee. Second, then, I think is this. Christ's kingdom, then, his rule, his reign, is a present reality now. Because let me ask you guys the, the simple question. I'm not asking to be trite or anything. When did the ascension occur? Exactly. In the past. Right? The ascension occurred 2,000 years ago in the past. And if it did, that means that the reality of Christ's rule and reign began 2,000 years ago. Right? It's not something that we're waiting for in the future. And so there's two important aspects to this, brethren. It's the reality that Christ's kingdom is a present reality. It is now. And so, brethren, it means that all those Old Testament expectations of the Messiah's kingdom is a present reality now. All those Old Testament expectations you read in your Bible, that we preach here, that we sing here, that we read in the Scripture readings, they are a present reality now. Which means then, this for you brethren, you're not awaiting this future kingdom to arrive at some distant point in the future. This is a good thing to orient your mind in now. We are in the kingdom now. We are in this period of Christ ruling and reigning now. And brethren, despite any popular belief, Amongst many Christians in America, we don't await for some future point in where Christ will then finally begin to set up his kingdom and then he will finally begin to rule and to reign. Brethren, the logic from Acts 2 is very straightforward. It's if the king has arrived, then the kingdom has arrived, right? If the king's been installed and sat down on his throne, then guess what else has come with him? The kingdom has come. That's the logical conclusion that Acts leaves you with. He's been raised and he's ascended and sat down to do what? To rule and to reign. Well, guess what's also come with him then? His kingdom. And so, brethren, listen, the ascension then means then, if Christ ascended, which, amen, he has, then this means he has been enthroned as king and that his kingdom has begun. Brethren, we're not awaiting it. It's a present reality now for the Christian and for the world. But second, I think there's another important aspect of this. It also means that all the promises we find 
in the Old Testament in regards to Christ and his kingdom will be fulfilled in time in history. And, and here's what I mean by this. Because I'm not, I can't give every Old Testament promise and um, expectation of the Messiah. But let me give you just a few, right? This expectation in the Old Testament, what's going to happen when Christ and his kingdom come? Well, a few things. He's going to save the nations, right? Can I get an amen on that one? Is that what he's going to do? We just sing all those songs? Yeah, amen. He's going to save all the nations. He's going to defeat all of God's enemies. And the establishment of peace and righteousness throughout the earth will fill up the whole earth before Christ returns. Amen? Isn't, isn't that some of the major promises of the Old Testament? They are. And so, brethren, it means then this. If those promises are promises of the kingdom, then we have expectation that those promises will be fulfilled in time in history and not when everything's said and done. Does that make sense? Right? This is what I mean by saying Christ's kingdom will be fulfilled in time in history. Those promises will become, have become a reality and will be fulfilled until Christ returns. So this means then that all of the promises of the kingdom in the Old Testament will find fulfillment in time in history before the end of history when Christ returns, brethren. And because it's the inevitable result of what Christ himself started. He began his reign. Which means he's beginning to unfold all of these promises in time and history. And so I think for us, brethren, that is uh, uh, something for us to note. That Christ's kingdom is a present reality now. Which means we don't await for something uh, further to happen in the future where Christ begins to then set up his kingdom. And also, brethren, we have this great hopeful expectation that all of those wonderful promises we find in the Old Testament, they're going to happen in time and history and now you may not see all of them, but you can bank on the fact that they will happen because he's ascended. He sat down, and now everything's coming to pass that has been promised. Third then, and I really want this one to real orient your minds. Brethren, history has a goal. right? Where, Because where, if I ask you guys a question, where's all of human history going? When you look at all the events going on over the past however many hundreds, thousands of years the earth's been here, Where's it all going? Because historians like to argue about where all this is going. They don't know where all this is going. But brethren, listen, as a Christian then, as one who knows that Christ ascended and began to rule and to reign, all of this ought to shape how we think about the trajectory of human history and where everything is heading. Where is its final goal? Where is the target? What is, a what is history aiming at? And so listen, I will grant you this. We may not know all the ups and downs of history, right? Because you don't even know the ups and downs of your own life, right? <laughs> we may not know all the ups and downs of history, but brethren, listen, we can, with, with Peter, have certainty about where it's ultimately heading, right? Christ is ruling and reigning until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Now, I don't know every step in between that, but I do know that that reality is going to come to bear and it will be the goal of history. And so I can begin to orient myself about how I think about time, how I begin to think about history. Brethren, this is the goal. There's only one reason why human history is still continuing. It's because it's continuing for the single purpose that Christ's kingdom would expand until it fills the whole earth. That's the only reason why human history is even continuing on. Because that's been God's goal. Which, brethren, that needs to be the way we think and needs to be our goal. We need to be oriented around that end. 
God is allowing time in history to unfold currently before your eyes for the single purpose that Christ's kingdom would expand over the whole face of the earth until it covers it. That's why history has been made, and that's where it's going, and that's how we need to think, brethren. You need to think, you need to talk, you need to act, you need to eat, sleep, and breathe this way of life because this is the biblical way of life. And this truth, brethren, then, needs to become an all-consuming reality for you. Let it eat up everything in your life. May it be like your true compass north. Christ is going to have the world. That's where history is going. And so a couple practical um, implications for us, just as us Christians here in the room. Brethren, we need to be about making disciples of the nations. This should be... I mean, this is one we obviously know, but brethren, it, it, it doesn't go, it, bear without repeating here, that the, the, the implication for us is this. If he really has been made Lord, and the decree to men is to, you come find refuge in the king, then brethren, we ought to, listen, we ought to, not we should, not we, we should try. Brethren, we ought to go and make disciples and teach them the way of obedience to Christ as Christ himself has commanded us in the Great Commission. Brethren, what other action could there be at the pronouncement, Jesus is Lord? How would his people respond? Well, what do his people begin to go do? They start going and telling everybody, hey, Jesus is Lord, we got to go tell some people about this thing. If this really is the king over the universe, the king of kings, lord of lords, he's really sitting over all things and everything's being directed towards his end, well, we got to open our mouths, brother. We got to tell people about this, that men have to come because history's heading this way. But brethren, none of that will happen unless it's through us. If we don't open our mouths, the proclamation of the gospel does not go out. This kingdom reality does not come to bear upon the souls of men. It's got to come to bear upon them. Jesus is worthy of every man. It's got to be spoken and come to bear upon human beings because Christ is Lord. And so we need to call them, brethren. And this is our task. And this task, brethren, flows directly out of this great doctrine that we confess, that Christ ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, we got to go. we got to tell some people. Another one would be this. Brethren, if that's going to be the orientation of your personal life, to go, to make disciples, to teach them the way of obedience to Christ, then, brethren, you need to plan and work with the future in mind. And, and, and here's, what I, here's what I mean by this, right? We need to begin planning and working and thinking in all things that we do in life, raising our families, doing our jobs, uh, fellowshipping with the church, planning all these endeavors to go out and to do this or to do that. We need to plan and work with the future in mind because we know that the future has this great goal set before it. Christ is going to have the world. And so we need to begin planning with that kind of future in mind that, hey, guess what? We have time to accomplish this and go see this through. Therefore, we need to plan and, and to work towards an end. We need, we need to plan and to work as if, hey, this thing is going to come through God's people. So we need to actually kind of plan for this thing, not plan for, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe Christ will just come back and, and drop a bomb on the whole world tomorrow and it'll all be over, said, and done. So who needs to plan for anything in the future? Well, brethren, listen, if Christ has ascended, then we know what the plan is. He's coming for the world. He's going to do it through his people. And so that would orient our minds to think about how are we planning and working towards our great future? Because, brethren, listen, too many people 
if you spend any time on social media, which I would tell you to spend less time on social media, too many Christians are glued to headlines rather than the Great Commission. Right? They're too glued to what's going on about them in politics and the world and this and that and all sorts of other things, brethren. And there's no future planning. There's no future working, brethren. They are not busy about building the kingdom because they don't expect that thing to be built here in time in history. But brethren, if we understand this doctrine of the ascension rightly, we understand not only, not, not only is, there, is there something really great that's going to come and, 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 and uh, happen to the whole world, but brethren, there's a means by which it comes about. It's God's people planning and working, right? Uh, we, we need to get that in, in our minds. God's just not going to snap his fingers and it's all just going to appear out of, out of thin air. And so brethren, we need to be concerned then about the future in mind and plan and work towards that end. And, and, and here's a second reason for why, brethren, the future for you and for the coming generations is bright. Right? The future is bright. Unlike what you hear everything in the news, that the future is dim, the world's about to burn up in the heat, or we're about to run out of resources, or whatever you hear on CNN 10 every week at school, brethren, the future is bright because Christ ascended. The future's bright. Now listen, here's, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's easy. The building of this kingdom, brethren, will be hard work. Through trials, through sweat, blood, tears. But it is a bright future before us. The kingdom's going to grow. The gates of hell can't prevail over this thing. Therefore, our work won't be in vain. So brethren, who wouldn't be motivated then to roll up his sleeves, put his boots on, and say, I'm ready for the hard work, even if it is hard, because it's worthy. It's worth, it's worth the work, and it's, there's a bright future ahead of us. So, brethren, then lastly, in all of this, the biggest thing is Christ is simply worthy of all that we do because He's ascended. If we really confess here this morning that Christ has ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father as the true King and as the true Lord, and brethren, your King is worthy of your whole life, and He's worthy of all of your life. You think about how Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. You think about this. Why Paul says something like this. I appeal to you therefore brothers, right? By the mercies of God. By the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to, for the forgiveness of sins and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Brethren, that is is how much Christ is worthy of your lives, is that you would throw your body up on an altar like you would have thrown that animal upon the altar to be taken apart and used for whatever purpose God had for it. He's worthy of it, right? He was worthy of the animal. Well, brethren, He is doubly worth you. He is worthy, brethren, of every part of it. We throw our whole self upon the altar because He's King. And we throw our whole self upon the altar because we recognize and there's no area that Christ doesn't say in your life. Mine, right? He says it about every area of your life. He touches it, and there's nothing that is off limits to Him. We are simply, brethren, called to offer it up. We are to offer it up to Him on the altar because He's ascended, because He's King. And listen, this, brethren, pleases Him. This pleases Him, like the sacrifices of old, rising up to Him in incense as a pleasing aroma. And this pleases the Father as you give yourself wholly to Him on the altar of faith because He desires you. And brethren, listen, 
and then it's ultimately for your good. This is the best thing for you. Because Christ has ascended, the best thing for you is to give your all for him because he's worthy of it. And in turn, brethren, you'll find all of your goodness and your joy in it. So, brethren, as we finish up here then, we come back to that question at the beginning. What is the ascension and why does it matter? Well, brethren, the ascension is the ascending of Christ to heaven to sit down at the Father's right hand, which means that the ascension of Christ is his vindication as the rightful king, and it is the king's enthronement and coronation ceremony. And because of this, brethren, we know, as we have just gone over a few, the implications of this are vast and deep. <laughs> it has changed the whole course of human history. That one little act of the ascension has changed the course of human history forever. And brethren, it's changed your life forever. <laughs> has it not? It has changed your life forever as it's changed the whole world forever. And so brethren, listen, because this thing has happened and we know for certainty that it's happened, we can confess as we do later on and we can have assurance that Christ is seated down at the right hand of the Father and praise the Lord for that. So let's pray.